the History in Today podcast. This week, Katie and I were joined by guest Jocelyn Fung as we talked about the model minority myth for Asian Americans, the role of stereotypes on society as a whole, and the implications of these norms on how certain groups react to today's issues. I hope you will all enjoy our conversation as much as we did. Let's get into it. So this week, we are uh, talking with Jocelyn about uh, the model minority myth and stereotypes in general, So and how they pertain to today's events and today's issues. So uh, who wants to get started talking about the uh, the background of the minor, uh, model minority myth? Um, I guess I can talk a little bit about it. Um, it is actually quite interesting how it came about because before the model minority myth, Asian Americans in general just were not welcomed in this country. In the 1800s, um, Chinese American immigrants were told to go back to their country and they were seen as immigrants stealing white people's jobs. Um, in 1882, there was even the Chinese Exclusion Act put in place um, to completely ban Chinese people from immigrating to the United States. And then over the years, there are like the Japanese internment camps hate crimes against Filipinos. It wasn't until the 1960s that white people coined the term the model minority myth. Um, there was an article published in the New York Times by a sociologist talking about the Japanese American success story. And in that article, he officially coined the term model minority labeling Asians as successful um, because of their two-parent family structures, their cultural values, and the emphasis on education. The model minority myth was later extended to other East Asians because, quite frankly, people just could not tell the difference between us. And over time, it got extended to Asians in general. Um, in addition, the Immigrant Act of 1965 banned immigration except for professional and for family re reunion. So that attracted a lot of experts um, in Asia to come to America, people who are doctors, engineers, and the sorts. Um, so those immigrants came here already with their high income. I mean, like high education levels, they were able to find good jobs, secure their place in society, and had a good income, um, which just reinforces the model minority myth that although Asians are immigrants and although we have been oppressed and still are, um, we can be very successful in society. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit on the background. Mm -hmm. Do you two have anything to add? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's it's really just, it's kind of sad at first. And, you know, we talk about how it started with William Peterson's article uh, in 1966, how they started with the Japanese and then they kind of spread out through them all. And it's kind of sad because I feel like, like they picked the Japanese probably because of the events of World War II and... Maybe mm -hmm. Peterson was thinking even as like a positive 
you know, he was thinking, oh, we discriminated against these people 20 years ago. And then, you know, now we're going to call them the the model minority myth, the model, model minority, which I guess, you know, to him in that mindset of, you know, right smack in the middle of the civil rights movement, I guess he thought, oh, you know, this is a, this is a good thing. This is me supporting them and telling them, oh, they're closer to being, you know, pretty much hard to put it any other way, closer to being white. And I feel like it's it's sad how that was the progressive view at the time where, you know, the New York Times has always been more on the more progressive view side. That was the progressive view at the time. And now we sit here 50 years later looking at it like, oh, maybe that wasn't the most... <laughs> Uh, wasn't the most good way to look at it. Yeah, definitely. It it's used to justify um, the oppression, the hate crimes, um, and everything, just because the Japanese Americans ended up doing well in society. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it also is. Well, the modern minority myth is rooted in white supremacy because it was, in a sense, created to deny racial discrimination. Um, essentially, it's saying that, well, if the Asians can do it, if the Asians can get into Ivy League schools and be doctors and be really rich, why can't other minorities, right? Like, if the Asians can do it, there isn't anything institutionally that is preventing other communities of colors to succeed whatever that means in our capitalistic society but like that is simply not true and it harms communities of color and it harms our own communities as well yeah i think that the danger of placing stereotypes on on any group of people anywhere um but it's but specifically like on specific communities i feel like a lot of the times you know these types of stereotypes are very specific and the expectations to you know fulfill the content of those stereotypes is very high so i think that it becomes a real problem because all of these people are striving to you know fit this this small stereotype that was was created for them small meaning like small in guidelines and small and very specific in you know what people expect of them and so i i think that it's what's so dangerous about it is when when there are people who who don't fit in that stereotype they they sh they tend to struggle even more because they have that added pressure to you know fit ideals that you know they just don't fit into which is fine not everyone is supposed to fit into a into a stereotype you know people are different and even you know within cultures there there's still individuality um which i think is you know something as we continue to talk um that we'll see really impacts you know different communities but you know bringing it back um jocelyn as you said it by applying a stereotype that was created in mind for one community, which, you know, isn't great, but, but by like using that stereotype, 
and applying it to different communities that are even more different when it doesn't even work for the people within that one community that it you know was created for you know these different types of you know divisions arise and i definitely believe that that other racial groups or other minority groups shouldn't be expected to to you know live up to the model minority um myth because they're they're just different and they come from different cultures and you know asian americans shouldn't even be um expected to live up to it either because it's stereotypes that didn't arise from something that you know was like originated in their culture it was something that outsiders took and kind of spun to make it the reality which i guess is the theme of all stereotypes mm-hmm. yeah and like outsiders spun it also in a way to kind of not only just uplift the asian american population uh over other minorities but also to justify you know hey we did all these horrible things to them for a century but yeah no now, now they're good now so <laughs> we can we can ignore the past but uh so i wanted to ask jocelyn uh what's your personal experience with the model minority myth if you'd want to share yeah um i feel like i felt the need to live up to the expectations in order to fit in as an Asian. Um, I am unfortunately quite very much the stereotype. Like I am good at math, good at science, a STEM major. I've played piano pretty much my entire life. Um, I have a two parent family, just your typical Asian. And in high school, I remember I studied really hard for my AP Calc test not even because I like wanted a good grade or if I wanted the college credit, it's it was pretty much only because people saw me as the Asian girl who was good at math. And because of that reason, I felt like I couldn't get anything less than a five on the AP test. Um, so thinking back, that was kind of wild how I really just lost interest in like my grades and accomplishments and really just focus on my reputation based on the model minority myth um and it definitely is hard for me like my parents aren't that um i guess like focused on academics not that they don't care but they understand if i don't have straight a's you know like my mom has been more carefree and my dad wasn't very involved in um, my education growing up. So as long as I'm not like failing out of school, <laughs> he doesn't really care either. Mm-hmm. But like even aside from that, I've always felt the need to get good grades and be successful academically. And I could also see the model minority myth kind of manifesting in my relationships, um, my family issues and stuff, because it, mm, this is kind of hard to explain because a lot of cultural values also tie into it, but I think a lot of it is about perfectionism and just being this perfect minority. Um, And so I would struggle like leaving toxic relationships and speaking up about myself because I didn't want to be problematic 
and that like my family wouldn't want to be seen as broken, quote unquote. Um, but yeah, their strive to meet unrealistic standards really leaves little room for mistake and failure. Um, and we could see this come up with mental health issues, how Asian Americans are less than half as likely to seek professional help when it comes to mental illness. Um, also this notion that you can just work through it, struggle through it, and there's a lot of stigma around mental health in Asian culture. It's still today not very much talked about. Um, but yeah, I feel like, especially for our youth, um, the expectation that they have to have good grades, they have to be good at math, play piano and all that, um, really not, I mean, barely any people meet those expectations. You know, sometimes people just randomly like fall into those groups, mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people don't and it's perfectly fine. It's also tough because it's, we've internalized model minority myth so much. When I was young, I did not even know it existed. Um, so I wouldn't know how it was affecting me and my mental health. Um, but now that I know, like it's, Really, it's a myth. I cannot care less. Uh, but yeah, I see. I think like for the younger generations, before they understand it, it can come up in a lot of mental health issues that they don't even understand. Yeah, I think it's you know, it's definitely you know. I, I feel bad that that's kind of you feel might feel carpet carp yeah compartmentalized there we go compartmentalized <laughs> into, into that but you know i think it's also important to realize that you know you said you know it's totally okay if you don't fit the mold it's also totally okay if you do fit the mold because again i think it you know you have this idea where you know you don't want to be the stereotype or you might have shame about, oh i'm there i'm you know fulfilling the stereotype and i've definitely felt that in my life where a bunch of people have come up and told me that i had Jewy hair or dewy beard or something and then you, oh, no. like, you can be totally proud of that like you know being proud of your culture and your stereotypes or you know it doesn't have to be proud of the stereotypes being proud of something that you do regardless of how society pictures how you're quote-unquote supposed to be uh mm -hmm. it's all about the individual yeah yeah and i yeah. think like beyond that like if you if you do fit within that stereotype, like that's not a reflection of you know society and what they're expecting of you. That's just who you are. Mm -hmm. I think I don't I don't believe in you know connecting like a person to a stereotype because like they're one and the same as that stereotype. Like they didn't do like for example, Jocelyn. I don't think you would say like you became like that because like of societal part like maybe you did but like from from like the way you've been talking like i feel like it's just kind of how you developed and it was more by chance that that's how you ended up not exactly mm -hmm. like you were you know actively searching to be like that and i think that there are like different cases depending on like factors like family struggle and, and things like that that you know i guess the more pressure that's added on to you as a child maybe it encourages you more to fit within that stereotype which 
I think like kind of speaks to the role that the family plays in, in the myth, I think, because it, I don't know how to explain it, but, you know, I guess I'm trying to say like the less pressure that's put on you, you know, the less likely you're, you're going to look at the myth and, you know, try to fit into it. Um, whereas like the more pressure, um, you get from different areas, um, you know, the more likely you are to kind of fit that and, and make sure that you're, you know, a reflection of that. But definitely mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. Um, that's just kind of what I've gathered by listening to you. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. But thank you. That was so validating. <laughs> but yeah, I think like, at least for me and my family, like, my parents aren't very um, harsh on academics, but it comes up in like my extended family my aunts would be like did you get straight A's this semester um and stuff like that like even though I don't see them often it's kind of like expected that you get good grades and it's really hard to tell how much of that is from our culture and how much of that is from the societal pressure of upholding the model minority myth for older generations um I think part of that is also because I come from a family of immigrants. So like they understand that it's important to get your education so you can get a good job, um, you know, so you can have a house, have a little family and all that. But yeah. To build on the, the family of immigrants idea, I uh, the older generations in my family, uh, in either my, grandpa, my grandfather or my great-grandfather, Either, either side respectively were immigrants and I do feel like I, I get that kind of you know we immigrated here and there's a lot of emphasis on education from that generation and also a lot of emphasis on stereotypes so do you feel like you know the the kind of the older you get in your family the more maybe the stereotypes might be accepted or the uh, there might be a gap between how you know you would view maybe a stereotype that is quote-unquote positive might be kind of secretly negative versus someone older in your family, not not to their own fault at all, but just kind of how they learned and how that based on the world that they've lived in, they might see it as, oh, it's positive and it's positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like, the more I read up on it, the more I realized how harmful it is even to ourselves and for the older generations. Like I've had Asian friends who told me like their parents think that they worked so hard for this good reputation and like why would you want to dismantle it um because superficially it is positive you know like Mm -hmm. um like you wouldn't think there's anything inherently bad about people assuming that you're just smart and good at math um and in a way, it does give me a lot more privilege, and I, as an Asian American, benefit from it because, like, my place, for example, in, um, I don't know, a conference room wouldn't be questioned because of my race, um, and if teachers just assume that I'm a good student, that would potentially give me better grades. Um, because there's, you know, implicit bias. Um, 
But yeah, now I realize that it is harmful to other communities because it, again, like denies the racial discrimination that is built in in our societal structures. And also within the Asian community itself, there is a huge gap in income across ethnic groups and there is a huge difference in poverty rate education levels and all that but the communities that need help are often neglected because there's the rhetoric that you can just work your way up um and we've internalized it so much that families but asian families would think that they don't even deserve the help that they can just you know work free jobs and eventually succeed in society whatever that may mean but yeah for the older generations i think like i don't think people aren't willing to listen it is a lot to unpack um but yeah I'm kind of losing my train of thought. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, no worries. No worries. I think, yeah. uh, oh, wait, Katie, do you want to talk? Oh, yeah, but you can go first. That's fine. Well, you, by all means, go ahead. Okay. I just, like, wanted to kind of not, like, go off on, like, a different thing, but kind of connect to something you've said, Jocelyn. I think that it's mm -hmm. something that's so hypocritical about just American society at large is that, you know, because we're so rooted in capitalism, there's this idea that, you know, everyone can succeed if they just work hard enough. Mm -hmm. but, but something you mentioned is that, you know, specifically in the Asian American community and in other communities as well, there are huge income gaps. There, there are huge differences in, you know, situations that, you know, sometimes are, are, are or are not out of your control. And I think to kind of make that connection to immigration like there's this idea that you know you can come to america and if you work hard enough you can get you know to the top and achieve you know the quote american dream but what is you know so hypocritical about that is that people don't have the resources sometimes sometimes to do that and so it's but but nonetheless the expectation is still there you can still do it even though we know you don't have you know necessarily the resources to get there um and i think i don't know if part of that's rooted in these stereotypes well oh they're educated so that so they can you know get to where they need to be but you know there are other barriers even if they have an education that you know could prevent them from you know seeing quick success or you know, it could be, you know, they're struggling with something, you know, emotionally or, you know, they've had different setbacks. So I think that it's just an interesting thing to to observe that, you know, despite the different individual individual like circumstances that people face, it's still the expectation, no matter what, you can work it, you can get to the top. Whereas in reality, like that might not necessarily be possible for, for, you know, certain factors that are, you know, individual to different people in society. So I just like wanted to point that out, you know, as we, as we are talking to different people, um, in this, you know, series, in this season, I think it's interesting to note that this is like a trend that, you know, we're starting to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for pointing that out. 
Yeah, and I think yeah to build on that, you see like uh, we learn in A push. I don't know if all three of us took A push, but we learn in A push. I remember specifically one name that was on the uh, the packet, the, the packet that our teacher gave us of you know names we had to know over the test was uh, John Jacob Astor, who all we had to know about John Jacob Astor was that he was, quote-unquote, a self-made man. <laughs> and so he was this guy that, you know, he came up from nothing and he, he made his, and he's kind of this this framework that would go on to become the, the American dream. And it's interesting to think that, you know, th this American dream definitely took root in the 1800s. We saw the gold rush was definitely a big part of that in the mid-1800s. You have, you know, a majority of the country. I mean, it's still the majority of the country, but a large majority of the country at the time was white. And in this American dream, you know, yeah, you have disparity between, you know, Germans and Irish and Belgian and uh, Dutch, but they're all generally from the same place in a very Eurocentric world. And this American dream is built in that era when you have... A Eurocentric world. Astor was later on in the 1800s, but still, in the 1800s, around the time, actually, let me do a little fact checking. I believe around the time that the Chinese Exclusion Act was uh, uh, was signed into. Yeah, John Jacob Astor uh, actually was earlier. So yeah, Astor was the uh, the middle, the the late 1700s, early 1800s. So that kind of proves the point more, where this guy would, was the American dream in a time when America was pretty much only white, except for, obviously, the African-American slaves who really weren't accomplishing the American dream at the time. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's, you know, when we think that, you know, immigrants can come to this country, it, it comes to a point where it's immigrants can come to this country and, and achieve the American dream as long as they're the kind of immigrants that this country is going to accept. And unfortunately, uh, we have a long history of kind of turning away immigrants that didn't look like the norm, per se. Mm -hmm. I think that kind of, I think that kind of contributes to a, a problem where it comes to people coming as you said, coming, thinking they can achieve whatever they want in the land of opportunity and then seeing that it's not the land of opportunity for everyone. Yeah, it always seems to me it's like you can come here and do your thing, but you just can't be better than us. Mm -hmm. Us meaning like the white Americans. Um, and I think I don't know, like our value in American society is very conditional. Because as immigrants, we do contribute to the economy um, and the American society in general. But we can also be tossed away any day and it would matter. If that makes sense, like you see that with COVID-19, how because Trump called it a Chinese virus, hate crimes against Chinese Americans just arose nationwide um and then that extended to um like east asians and 
because people just cannot tell the difference between different Asian ethnic groups. Um, so it's weird because I feel like a lot of us hold on to the model minority myth, thinking that it benefits us, um, thinking that it makes us closer to whiteness. But with COVID, we see that um, we can also be easily disposable, right? Like there's one virus and suddenly they're telling us to go back to China over again. I think like also part of part of that, which like is so, so messed up in my point of view is that, you know, I'm just going to say it straight. Like Trump is so quick to, to blame China and, you know, obviously that that blaming of China, you know, extends to other um, Asian communities as well, because, you know, people tend to like lump Asian people all into one group, which is terrible, but it, it, it's what happens. And I think like people are so quick to forget that that we could have done things to prevent COVID from coming to the United States. Like we could have closed our country and banned travel before it became an issue, but because it wasn't perceived as an issue by our president because he thought it was fake, um, that that didn't you know happen. And so now instead of taking responsibility for the mistakes he made, he's like, oh, I'm gonna blame this community because it originated in that country. But just because it originated in that country doesn't mean that there were things that he could have done to prevent it from being as bad as it is. There are still many things that he could have done to prevent it being as bad as it as it is, even when, you know, COVID arrived. You know, so I, I just think that it's ridiculous that, you know, these these stereotypes and, and him calling it the China virus and these hate crimes, it's just so dumb because it's what it's it's the things we didn't do as a country as well you know it's mm -hmm. it's not just you know the asian countries to blame it's it's not just china to blame it's what it's how america and our american quote leaders chose to react to it and instead of taking responsibility they're pushing he's pushing it on to different groups um just for the sole fact that you know it it originated in that country not ours which which yeah. just blows my mind, but I'm not surprised, you know. Yeah, and his and one of his main platforms in the last two debates, well, I guess Pence's platform in the, the last debate, but it's the same, it's basically the same platform. Uh, but one of his main arguments that I've seen is, you know, on Trump's reaction to COVID-19, you know, he was great because he closed, he closed our borders from China. And, you know, it's that very one-sided argument that you're talking about where, you know, he isn't, he's not going to talk about the things we could have done, but only, also he's talking about, you know, closing borders from China when at this point we're what, six, seven months into the, into this virus and into the information that we've been getting about this. And it's almost certain that the first COVID case in the U S didn't even come from China, probably came from Europe. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the fact that we have a president who is supposed to be the leader of our country and supposed to be this model for everybody uh you know months into this catastrophe that is still sounding off that you know we can blame one country for a global pandemic which you know obviously you know the first reported cases are from wuhan and it seemed to have originated in wuhan uh 
the fact that we probably didn't even get it from China is just kind of ironic how he's tooting his own horn about how, oh, we closed the border with China, but we still have 210,000 people dead. So clearly that wasn't incredibly effective. Yeah, I think like, it's also not very much talked about how um, Europeans were traveling all over the place, mm-hmm. um, spread a good chunk of the virus, to be honest. Um, but the media is like, no, it's blaming on the Chinese, which is also fair because the Chinese government didn't say anything at first. Um, but to be fair, like once that's, you know, once the virus is in your country, that's your problem. <laughs> like, what do you want China to do about it? Yeah. It also makes you think that if you look back to January and, you know, Trump was engaged in a trade war with China and he was in the middle of impeachment proceedings. And it makes you think, you know, we've seen we've seen how this man's mind works over the last four years. And you think maybe he sees that they're having this, you know, horrible virus ravaging the part of their country. And he sees that, you know, he needs a win. So kind of makes you think maybe he didn't do anything because I mean, this is all speculation. Obviously, I'm not basing this in fact, but Maybe the man said, oh, you know, there's a virus going on in their country. Uh, it's not going to come here. Let's just kind of let that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To go back for a second, though, to what you said about how, you know, you feel that Asian Americans are kind of able to, you know, be here as long as they don't outperform, as long as you don't, you know, take over the, the, the position of whites in this country where it feels like, you know, don't, don't do better than us. If you don't do better than us, you're, you're okay to be here. Uh, I think it's important to maybe talk about how, like, even recently we saw with the Harvard, Harvard quota scandal, where they literally had quotas on how many Asian people could be in their school and they got sued for it. Thank God. But, uh, it seems like a lot of colleges might have that problem. Uh, and don't get called out. So do you feel like Harvard is kind of the only one, or do you think that's just kind of a more widespread issue? Mm, I am, like, still trying to wrap my head around that because at the same yes, like, that is discriminatory towards Asians, but at the same time, I feel like we, as a demographic, are overpopulated mm-hmm. in Ivy League schools, and... Like, it's not really diversity if you just have white people and the Asians, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like, I can only speak for myself, but as an Asian American, I would give up my spot at an Ivy League college if, like, a Black American can get in, or if a Hispanic American can get in, like, if the more underrepresented groups are represented. Um, I think it's fair that what Asians should not be overpopulated, but that I think that should also apply to white people because obviously these schools are predominantly white. Um, But yeah, it is really confusing because the better approach I think would probably be to try to even out the different demographics according to like the percentage of like um, the group of people 
in that state or in the country instead of just banning one group from entering if that makes any sense yeah, you know that makes a lot of sense. sense if if there are like 15 percent of agents in connecticut then you should have 15 percent of agents at yukon or like somewhere around that um but yeah agents are also overrepresented at yukon as well um i don't know if you all saw but like last year they called the class of 2023 as the most diverse class we have like 40 percent people of color mm -hmm. but when you look at the breakdown um there are more asians than any other group and for black people they're still underrepresented um, yeah yeah and of course that breakdown isn't you know readily available with the oh we are the most diverse we're the most diverse mm -hmm. class and they're not going to say you know we have five percent white people five percent black people it's just we're the most diverse black class with 40 percent people of color and then that's the lump that they give you what I, what I think is interesting that's happening at UConn right now is, you know, we have, you know, instances where, you know, people are in different time zones this semester because they either didn't, like, you know, choose to come back to campus, which is totally understandable. Sam and I are on campus. We both have all online classes. Mm -hmm. um, but I was talking to someone in the, um, you know, international community, and she was talking about how, you know, a lot of students who are, you know, in different time zones, um, they they still have classes that are live um, oh. or, you know, synchronous. And so you have students who have to take classes at like 3 a.m. But then, you know, the university expects that those students are performing as well as, you know, a student in Connecticut on campus who, you know, is working during, you know, hours of the day that are um, expected. So I think that it's... It, like something that can even be seen on like a Yukon level is, you know, we pride ourselves in ourselves in the international community that we have, yet when they clearly need support or, you know, they shouldn't be doing schoolwork at like 3 a.m. because that's when their class is, the university is like, well, like, whatever, you know, this is just what it is. You know, you can't, you can't, you know, fit the, the class mode to reflect your personal circumstance. Um, yeah, it's just so... It's so mind blowing to me that things like that are are almost never considered, um, yet they affect that population. So it's like, why why are we priding ourselves on this international community when we're not taking the steps needed to actually ensure that they get the best quality education they can get? Um, which you know is something that I think is happening at UConn right now. In different communities as well, but you know, in specific regard to the you know Asian you know community, anyone who comes from an international place. Yeah, if I'm being honest, I didn't even think about that. I did not think that there would be live because I I just assumed that most people off campus are like us and don't have in person classes. But yeah, I get or not in person, the live classes. And I guess yeah, that that makes it that's that's horrible. You could have a class at like <laughs> yeah. three o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. So the last topic we wanted to talk about was, you know, we talked about COVID, which is another contemporary issue. But the last topic we wanted to talk about was the Asian American population and how the model minority myth kind of works with how Asian Americans have reacted to the BLM movement and other kind of other civil rights movements in the past few years. 
uh, and how reactions have have been to that. So, in your opinion, yeah, um, I think for Asian Americans, a lot of us are complicit in a sense that we tend to stay silent when we see oppression against other um, minority groups actively occurring, um, which is fair privilege of me to be able to just turn off my TV, look away. Um, but I think like part of that is due to the model minority myth and how it paints Asian Americans as docile, like non-opinionated, non-problematic, submissive, and all that. Like it paints us as law-abiding citizens who would just listen and not rebel. Um, and with Black Lives Matter, it it is politicized to the point where it's controversial, even though it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I mean, like anytime you speak up about a controversial topic, there is the risk that there's backlash, like people could disagree, um, you know, people could hate on you, whatever. And I think like as Asian Americans, at least I was told to always keep my head down, not cause trouble and all that. Um, also because coming from a family of immigrants, like my family understood how unwelcomed we can be in society. Mm -hmm. Like deep down we know, even if I was born in this country, even if I grew up here, doesn't matter like how much you've contributed to the capitalistic American society. At the end of the day, I am still more Asian than I am American. And I am still seen as an outsider, um, which makes speaking out more difficult because what if you say the wrong thing and say like your boss doesn't like it and they fire you, you know, like, um, I just feel like our place in the American society is so conditional that it makes us afraid to really express our opinions. Um, there's, I think like, there's this fear of seeing the wrong thing and where we stand, or like where we should stand in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement or other social justice uprisings because it doesn't directly affect our community. Mm. So people don't know if they could say something or if they should say something or if it's best to just be quiet. Um, but yeah, I think like it's definitely not our place to speak over Black voices, but um, to amplify them. And in addition to that, there's also a lot of deeply rooted anti-Blackness in Asian communities. Um, it is more overt in older generations and they kind of pass it along to us. Um, but that is also again rooted in white supremacy mm -hmm. because way back when the two racial groups were pitted against each other um, because white supremacy doesn't want minority groups working together, but rather against each other, seeing each other as competition. Mm -hmm. So 
we're so busy competing with each other, we forget that white supremacy is really stepping on our necks um, as we're fighting for literally crumbs. Um, but the anti-blackness, I think, also makes a lot of Asian Americans uh, fail to see really the struggle of black communities and the systemic oppression that has been put in place for centuries. And because, well, I mean, if you hate someone for literally no reason, you like you don't want to sympathize with them, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and you don't have a I see that. For, you don't have a reason for why you hate them so that the argument never can really be brought to the table. Yeah, I see that with like my family. Um, it it was really hard at first to try to get through with them. My dad really could not understand why the movement was trending, um, but it is a process. I think you know eventually they'll understand. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. I think that you know a big component of of that kind of aspect of not understanding what you know the black community faces it it all ties back to education i i wholeheartedly believe that of course i'm you know going to yukon to become a teacher so i'm always going to say it ties back to education but in this case it really does because when you look at how you know american history is taught for example it is taught through such a you know eurocentric lens that you never as a student you know get the real image of what different communities in america face like unless you're a part of that community you don't really know you know the extent of the struggles that that community faces and i i will even go as far as to say the way american history is taught in you know k-12 education perpetuates those stereotypes and allows them to you know be present mm -hmm. um and so i think that like a huge part of what we need to do as a society is to really start teaching a history that is reflective of the different communities that exist within america we can't just say oh america is so diverse and we're quote a melting pot but then not learn about the different cultures in the melting pot you know or you know, not try to learn about them from that culture's perspective. Um, you know, I think like something that's important to note is like why learn about the culture if it's coming from a perspective that's not from someone of that culture. Um, I think is something that's you know super applicable here, because then that's where you start to see different different groups that you know may experience some common ground maybe a little bit common ground in their struggles they can't seem to come together because they don't know you know of the common struggles they face um so i went i went on a tangent sorry that's about fine. that that's but, fine yeah. <laughs> yeah to circle back quickly to the idea of the the immigrant the the immigrant families kind of putting their head down a little bit I can kind of, I can definitely relate to that where this is a little bit topical because it's talking about what's happening tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow is, tomorrow means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It's Indigenous Peoples Day. It's Columbus Day. And Columbus Day to me as growing up 
in predominantly, you know, hearing from my the Italian side of my family, it's an important holiday that has nothing to do with Christopher Columbus. And when you when you hear this from the from the Italian side that, you know, it's really just about the the Catholics that were persecuted coming to this country, and that's all they want to hear about it. I've had this discussion with many people in my family. You know, Columbus Day has nothing to do with the actual person and the actions that he did. Now, of course, that's, you know, a very one-sided way to think about it and a very one-sided way that ignores the struggles of everybody else. You know, you have, you know, you, if you read the, anybody that reads the, the writings of Christopher Columbus knows that the man was not a good person. He was not a good person. He, you know, massacred thousands of Native Americans, massacred thousands of uh, many different, many different peoples uh, throughout uh, North America, and also led to the era of exploration where thousands and millions more would also be persecuted. So Columbus Day is this, this holiday that is seen by my family as sacred, as this holiday that, that we need to have because it's, you know, personally, you know, I have family members that needed to defend themselves against cops who were, they were getting, you know, police brutality was a thing against Italians in New York when they were growing up. And it was, it was a bad thing. A lot of them became boxers just so that they could defend themselves. And Columbus Day was this beacon of hope that they had. They had a holiday. It's like, you know, the Irish have St. Patrick's Day and other cultures have their specific, you know, cultural days. Columbus Day was the, was the Italian one. And it's sad because a lot of these people who, you know, obviously Columbus Day is being phased out, rightfully so. The man was, A, not an Italian, which, you know, I could get, I could get into this argument all the time. A, not an Italian. So that should be, you know, the first thing that kind of invalidates the reasoning behind my family celebrating the holiday. But B, a, you know, genocidal murderer who doesn't deserve to be celebrated, especially in a country that is supposedly preaching equality for all. But, uh, you know, it's being phased out and it's, it's getting replaced by Indigenous Peoples Day, rightfully so. But it's also a question of, you know, these older generations who are not going to accept that no matter what, you know, logic is placed in front of them, because it's not that they don't want to support the Indigenous people, it's that they feel, oh, you know, their justice is taking away my justice which you know then you have to figure out a compromise between the two but unfortunately people that are angry and people that are not willing to see all the facts and as katie said be educated on the topic i, I know a lot of people on both sides that, that don't really know the history of either holiday uh because of that because of that lack of education you get this rift between people that aren't even willing to come to the table. So I think that's all we have to say for the episode. Uh, thank you, Jocelyn, for coming. Uh, it was a great conversation. Thank you, Katie, of course, uh, as always. And uh, yeah, hope you guys have a great week. Thank you. Thank you.